Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 119 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. We again have three cases today, and again, you can expect that for many of the coming weeks. Uh, and again, we, we may continue to have uh, some uh, special uh, episodes, um, and we're trying to work out some of those as, as the Supreme Court and others get moving. Our first case today is from the Illinois 2nd District, McCabe versus CrossFit Tri-Cities, LLC. The second case today is Village of Orion, Orion versus Hardy, 4th District. And it, so they, they all said Orion, Orion. I know. I'm looking at that going, that's, that's Orion. Well, that's why, yeah, that's why I stopped because they were all saying Orion. So maybe, they you know, were. sometimes in downstate Illinois, uh, with, with, uh, it's Cairo instead of Cairo. So who knows? Exactly. Yep, yep, so it just must be a... It's Lafayette. Right, right. So it just must be a local flavor down there. So anyway... Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the third case today is U.S. Automatic Sprinkler Corporation versus Erie Insurance Exchange et al. before the Indiana Supreme Court. With that, let's turn to our first case. Does a business owner defendant who asks for assistance in setting up his business owe a duty to the plaintiff who is not being compensated and who volunteered to help for an allegedly defective ladder that the defendant borrows that causes the plaintiff injury? Is the plaintiff under the supervision of the defendant business owner and thus subject to his control? Does the co-defendant owner of the allegedly defective ladder owe a duty to the plaintiff to warn that the rubber paddings on the bottom of the ladder are worn through and will not grip the floor? Is the defendant business owner potentially liable for spoliation of the ladder when it is lost a year and after it is inspected prior to suit and then not available for the plaintiff's expert to inspect? Those are among the questions that the Illinois Appellate Court 2nd District will address when it decides McKay versus CrossFit Tri-Cities LLC. The Circuit Court granted summary judgment to both defendants, finding no duty, and dismissed the spoliation claim, holding that there could be no spoliation where there was no underlying liability. Relying on Restatement 2nd of Tort section, Sections 388, 405, 408, and 414, the plaintiff contended there was a duty owed to the plaintiff. The defendants countered that Section 408, the principal section on which the plaintiff relied, does not apply because it only concerns the lease of a, ch of a chattel, such as the latter, and Section 405 only requires the defendant to warn of defects that defendant should reasonably know about, and that information would be equally available to both the plaintiff and the defendant. Pat, with all that, tell us about this oral argument. Yeah, this was this was an argument that was really all over the place. You had two advocates for the to the for the two defendants on these multiple these multiple theories, and you have this plaintiff who, in the category of no deed goes unpunished, <laughs> decides to help a friend set up this business, and he was he was erecting a sign for this new business at the time. He was a volunteer. Um, he he wasn't uh, being compensated. Um, and many times volunteer laborers or volunteer employees are covered under a CGL, covered 
for liability under CGL policy. Uh, this is a circumstance where I, I, I imagine there's a coverage issue in here somewhere based on what I heard. It sounds like sure it. There's a coverage action, but that wasn't what was going. That wasn't the issue in this case. But so this fellow or the the owner of the business borrows this ladder from the co-defendant. Apparently the rubber grips on the bottom were defective such that the aluminum spikes that held on the grips were showing through. The plaintiff goes and puts the ladder, which was not an A-frame ladder, but a a straight ladder up against whatever to try to set up this sign because he has some talent or expertise in this area. And he goes to do it and ladder goes out from under him. And he's severely injured, requires a couple surgeries to fix his ankles you know, and perhaps some other injuries. It was unclear the extent of the injury, but at least a couple surgeries. Um, and you can imagine, you know, a pretty substantial injury depending on how, how high up he was when the when the fall occurred. Um, but this was, the summary judgment was granted on the du- on duty that neither the, empo- neither the uh, business nor the person from whom he borrowed the ladder owed a duty to the plaintiff. And the idea was so that you have the person who owned the ladder lent it to the defendant business owner who then said, hey, go use this ladder. And you could you put this up for me? Great. So he goes and does that and the injury happens. So he sues under 408, the plaintiff does, and 408 deals with the leasing of chattels. In other words, if I <coughs> loan somebody uh, a piece of personal property for um, – for a fee, then I owe a duty of care. But if I just lend it to my neighbor, which is what happened here, one neighbor lend it to another who then said, hey, could you help me do this over here? You don't really owe a duty. And, and, and you can see why right. that is. Um, a person who is doing this for profit for a business, that would that's that's their that is their business of lending out or leasing such such equipment. Whereas a, a neighbor, I mean, why would they owe a duty? It's not dissimilar from and I think this actually came up in the argument. If I buy a used car from a non-dealer, uh, then I owe a different duty than if I buy a used car from a dealer who is in, who is, knows these cars presumably, knows cars generally. That, that you know he owes a different duty than you know the guy next door that sells me his his old beater, and then the beater is defective in some way. Uh, that's at least the argument. That's the theory behind this. Uh, and that was the, the theory that the uh, circuit court bought in dismissing these claims. There were also issues, and I didn't, I don't quite understand how they fit into this. Dan, maybe you understood this a little better uh, or understood this at all because I didn't. This idea of whose who's supervision he was under or who he was who was watching what he was doing or who was directing him, it's hard to understand how he's being uh, how he's under the supervision of the business owner yep. defendant. I, I understand that he's doing this work for him to be sure, but is he really under his supervision? I, I, I don't know about that in the same way in, in, in the way that if you were, if you were an employee again, I, I think, I think there's, I can't put my finger on it, but it seems to me that the law is going to want to impose a du- a duty where you have a fine, have an economic relationship. Um, and as opposed to a situation where you don't, because, you know, the plaintiff isn't going to like this, but if that's the situation, then why isn't this comp? 
and he's really not going to like that the, that recovery relative to what he's going to look for in civil court. Um, you know, you 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 can walk the fine line, and you can step over it. And and I, I wonder, I, I wonder about that. In that vein, our old friend, open and obvious doctrine is lurking here. It, it, it's lurking. And I, and I say that in that vein because, if you recall, one of the two exceptions to the open and obvious doctrine is the deliberate encounter exception. That is that you would expect someone to encounter this danger, notwithstanding the risk that's known, even though or because they have a financial interest in it. Now, this fellow was not being compensated, uh, this plaintiff. Um, you know, he, he didn't have a uh, he wasn't getting anything out of this financially. Um, but I, it, you know, the open and obvious doctrine is kind of lurking there, and I, I will relate that to the the Lee case, the Lee versus Lee case, where the two guys lash the two ladders together and 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 then attach them to the the tree branch they're going to cut, and let's just say that didn't work out well, um, Frank. And um, these geniuses, I mean, I feel sorry for the fellow that was hurt, but really, uh, you know, you you lash two ladders together and then and then. Uh, Attack, and try to cut down the branch. We need to get to the branch you're trying to cut. I, I, I think you're asking for trouble. And the court said that's an open and obvious danger. Are the bottoms of the a ladder where you don't have proper rubber rubber grips on them? Is that an open obvious condition? I, I have to say I've used ladders like this before, and I've looked at the bottom, especially if I'm on a floor that's like a linoleum or a or a tile or some sort of slick or a wood floor. If it's a carpet or something that's got some more friction to it or would create some more friction, then, then perhaps not. But, you know, you got to look, right. don't you? Doesn't the plaintiff have a duty to look and see the condition of this ladder? Um, and, and one of the justices drew a distinction between a latent defect and a patent defect. This seems to be in the category of a, of a patent defect. One that if you looked and the plaintiff alleged this, you would know right. it was there. Because all you do is look, uh, and the the defendants say, "Well, that cuts both ways." Uh, if it was obvious to me, it was obvious to you. I didn't own the ladder; I borrowed it from some other guy. I mean, I've had cases where the person's led a ladder, and there's a micro fracture in it, and the ladder fails. Well, that's a different kettle right. of fish. No one may have known that it was there; it was latent, and and, and you could and so the, there, you may see a decision that draws this distinction between a latent and a patent defect in this circumstance and whether, and what kind of defect this is, this has to be a patent defect. I think I so. Think. Uh, but we'll, uh, we'll see. Dan, anything else to add on this? Now, case? Pat, you, you'd mentioned earlier the supervision thing, and I was thinking the same thing. Be careful how far you push that because if it is truly a supervision and control um, situation, you might get into the workers' comp arena. And again, he's not being compensated, but it, but it, it's just an interesting uh, situation here. I agree with you, it's a patent defect, and um, you know, that it'll be interesting to see how this gets handled, but uh, I, I, I don't think that the, uh, the defendant here is going to have a lot of exposure, just because again, like you said, same ladder, they borrowed it, you know, like you, Whenever I've done anything where I got to get on a ladder, I, I don't like ladders that much. So I always, you know, check out the ladder and make sure it's at least working, you know, that that, that, that if it's a locking ladder, the lo the locks are locked, you know. And generally on these types of ladders, I, you know, 
have always, when I've gone to do leaves or whatever it is, have had somebody hold the bottom, you know, it's for steadiness because these things are notorious for not, you know, they're, they're just propped against the side of something. And, and so they, they have a tendency depending on the movements and stuff. And again, I don't know how big the sign was or how awkward it was to carry a sign up this ladder to, to install it. But, you know, there's all kinds of issues here. I had a case years ago where the guy, they were going in to fix uh, or to fix something in, in an interior and the floor had been done. And so the floor was covered with paper. So naturally they put a non-A-frame ladder on the paper. Well, that let's just say that didn't work out very well, especially when he leaned the ladder at about a, you know, at, at not a very, at a very slight angle. And uh, that didn't work out. It was almost like a platform. Yeah. Uh, he was fine when he was trying to work at the 16-foot part of the ceiling. But when he got to the 8-foot part of the ceiling, it didn't work out very well. A-frame ladders, people. A-frame That's ladders. Right. But for much better situation. Um, so with that, we'll take our next break and come back with Village of Orion versus Hardy. We're back for segment two of episode 119 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're discussing Village of Orion versus Hardy. Cats have nine lives, as the dissent in the first appeal took judicial notice of in a footnote, and the second appeal might have nine issues. Is a municipality stopped from enforcing an ordinance on the number of animals kept when there is a note in the minutes, but not clear a clear indication of a vote, that the defendants will be able to keep a number of cats above the limit above the, the, the ordinance limit for the natural term of the life of those animals is a dismissal of a complaint that does not indicate it is with or without prejudice presumed to be with prejudice such that it confers appellate jurisdiction. Can a circuit court hold an evidentiary hearing as to what action, if any, that municipality took with regards to the number of cats in order to, in order to resolve a motion to dismiss under section two six one nine. This seems like an emphatic no, but that is what the circuit court did. Is the, the law of the case doctrine from the third district in a prior appeal, case is now pending in the fourth district after the redrawn appellate districts, that an unclear order as to a, whether a dismissal is with prejudice or not is appealable such that the fourth district is bound by the third district prior opinion. Justice Steigman referred to this argument from counsel for the appellee as a, quote, very strange doctrine indeed, end quote. The defendant was the former animal control officer of the village of Orion, and during her tenure, she would house the animals at her home. After the position was eliminated, she still had the animals, and the village took a filed a nuisance violation. In addition, she was charged criminally for animal cruelty, as indicated in the yep. first appeal. In the prior appeal, the appellate court reversed the finding, the dismissal finding that there was no basis for dismissal, and on remand, the circuit court dismissed the case again, this time after holding an evidentiary hearing. Dan, tell us about the oral argument. I never thought we'd be talking this much about cats and no. ordinances, but this case has got so many issues. So we had one other case early on uh, that had to do with the lady. Remember that uh, the emergency people went to her house and she had about a gazillion in, cats in, in, in Rockford. Rockford. Right, the, the 1983 right. case. That's right. right. Yeah. So first of all, the the note that was in the in the village minutes. Uh, was allegedly one board member or something, uh, and why they put those in the minutes, I'll never know. That's a, a 
uh, corporate governance and best practices standard. Like you shouldn't put stuff in there that's uh, amounts to dicta or non-binding. You know, uh, as the uh, advocate noted, uh, the only way that the village can act per statute is by voting uh, through its ordinances that that are passed by uh, the the city council. But in any event, the note that was in in place here uh, said that. Uh, it, it referred to up to 10 cats, I think was the number. And it turns out that this lady uh, had 80 something cats, maybe, maybe more. Uh, plus awesome some dogs. dogs. Um, as you mentioned, this, uh, this case, when it first was on appeal, uh, was in the third district. And then as we've talked about on this show uh, earlier this year, I think it was earlier this year, right? The, the uh, it got it redistrict, right? Based on, uh, a new map for the, the appellate districts. And so we've got a, a different, now it's in the fourth district. Um, there was a lot of discussion and Pat, maybe, maybe you found a statutory reference. I looked because at one point the advocate mentioned that uh, orders that are dismissals by judges are dismissed with prejudice unless, uh, unless stated otherwise. I've never heard that before. Uh, typically, Every dismissal with prejudice ever since it says dismissed with prejudice. And so, um, and so if it's not a dismissal with prejudice, then it's not an appealable final order. And so, uh, as you mentioned, some of the justices were uh, asking about that is, do, do we even have jurisdiction here? Well, they had asked for, they had sent a letter asking for them to be prepared to discuss yeah. the issue. And let's just say council wasn't prepared to discuss the issue. If there's a statute, cite the statute. Well, not only, not, not, prepared to, to discuss it, but kind of brushed off on it. I mean, it was just bizarre because, as you mentioned, they sent a letter saying, be prepared for these two issues to discuss. And the advocate just didn't really, uh, it said, prepare March 7th final order uh, and ascertain whether the court has jurisdiction. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, right out of the box, that what the uh, council said was don't know that those words are necessary, that it's with prejudice. And again, I had never heard that before. Uh, it sounds, you know, I don't know who this advocate is, but he sounds like he's uh, been around for a while. It's not like he's a brand new lawyer. And so, uh, and like you said, if you have it, uh, as we've talked about in this show many times, if you have whatever it is that supports your case, be prepared with it. Don't say, you know, there's a case out there somewhere that I saw once that, that stands for what I'm telling you. Your Honor, because the judges aren't buying that. They, they want to know and see what's, what's actually happening. If, it, if, they didn't, if they hadn't raised the issue beforehand, that would be one thing, but they did. They they gave them a heads up and they said, hey, here's what we're looking yeah. for. Um, and then there was some discussion about whether there was a, the, the, this uh, hearing uh, the, 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 uh, on 2619, whether that was a, a mini trial to decide uh, whether the board minutes were conclusive. Um, the, the estoppel argument that you mentioned at a subsequent board meeting, there's another reference to uh, her having the cats. And so, again, uh, very, uh, a couple of things. One is whoever, whoever was the secretary of the uh, municipality, uh, you know, did, need, needs to get a better uh, uh, way of, of, of uh, recording notes. You know, I've been secretary for uh, for-profits, non-profits, uh, outside general counsel. And you may take copious notes, you know, while you're listening to the meeting, but the, the in minutes should just reflect actual 
things that took place, right? Reports out, you know, there was a report out and then it should specify specifically what was voted on and then everything else should not be in the minutes. That's, I mean, that's just a, a good way of, of presenting the minutes and uh, not, not really uh, uh, do here. Um, the, the, the interesting thing was when the appellee stood up, um, the, there was uh, discussions about 2619 motions and whether if there's factual issues and matters, if it's okay to raise them as 2619 and the appellee advocate said, yeah, that's, that's appropriate, that, 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 that's okay. And as you're shaking your head, it's not, but, uh, I mean, as it is not, no, you cannot challenge the allegations of the complaint. They are taken as true as justice Dory pointed out. It's like, you can't do that. And that's called summary judgment. And, and, you know, the appellee again, tried to very, uh, deftly tried to navigate you know we admitted for this limited purpose but we still dispute it all and and like you said judge justice doherty was like wait a second that's not again you have to you have to concede that everything's true for the purpose of this motion right but that it still fails and so uh very uh we we've talked about we've talked about section 619 we have before they're a very unique illinois procedure and counsel is correct they're designed to deal with easily proved issues but not issues that are contrary to the, not factual issues that are contrary to the allegations of the complaint. Just like a 615, which is the Illinois version of a 12B6, you take the allegations as yep. true. And I, I had this, I had this, uh, an argument um, a couple weeks ago where a judge said to me, why didn't you file a 619? Well, they alleged it and it was well planned. That's why I had to file a summary judgment motion. I knew it wasn't true. So I had to. I didn't have a choice. I couldn't file a motion to dismiss because I didn't want to get yelled at the way this guy did. Uh, because if I won, it wouldn't have lasted very long because I moved under the wrong rule. Right. Um, you can't right. do it. And it, it, as you said, there's a lot of issues in this in this uh, oral argument. This case, one of them again is that the, the districts changed, and so there's some argument that the third district, you know, what they decided upon uh, was somehow binding in this fourth district said, look, we don't have the file. That, that was a different district, right? Like, explain to us why we're bound by... by. Well, not only that, it's a legal right. question, not a oh, factual right. one. It wasn't an issue they found. They just It was what they did. It, it's, it's, it's bizarre for a number of reasons, as, as Justice Steigman pointed yeah. out. Just a very, very, uh, very strange uh, circumstances, and, and uh, we'll see where this goes. So, so I want to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned, and I would commend to this. When I first started listening to this argument, I was like, am I really going to talk about cats? I'm glad I stuck with it because this thing was a shit show, <laughs> and it's really worth listening to because there's so much in here that's just – it's crazy. We're, if you're into civil procedure, as we apparently are, you'll cat litter, Cat litter box um, full of uh, shit. <laughs> exactly. It's a mess. But one thing I want to point out, and this is apropos of the the musical chairs we've been playing, not only with counties, Henry County, where this case came out of, but with justices. So two of the justices on this panel were Justice Doherty, who used to sit in Rockford in Winnebago County, which used to be in the second district, now is in the third district. 
he gets assigned to the fourth district when he gets made to the to the uh, appellate court. He was the chief justice in Winnebago County. Um, I appeared in front of him uh, with some frequency when he was a circuit judge there. And then Justice Zinoff was on the panel, and she's the one who raised the jurisdictional issue initially. Justice Zinoff used to be in the second district, and she just got moved to the fourth. She's a circuit judge somewhere else. Um, she, I forget where she's a circuit judge. And so she was appointed to be an appellate court justice in the second district, which is now, I think she's from a county that went to the third district. And so they sent her to the fourth district. And just so you understand the geography, the fourth district sits in Springfield, which is nowhere near yeah. Rockford. And I don't think it's very near wherever Justice Zinoff is from. Uh, justice Steigman, the other justice on this panel, has been on that, been on the fourth circuit forever, or fourth district rather forever, uh, for as long as I've been practicing at least. Uh, and, and so no surprise he was there. But the other two are relative newbies to the 4th District and uh, aren't from, <laughs> aren't originally from those places. So uh, very, very, very uh, I- I- interesting there. Yep. So uh, so with that, we'll take a break and come back with segment three. And an old friend of ours we've discussed before, U.S. Automatic Sprinkler Corporation versus Erie Insurance Exchange. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners, if you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back for segment three of the Podium and Panel Podcast, episode 119. Does it really matter who calls to report a claim in determining whether a waiver of subrogation applies? That was a repeated question from justices on the Indiana Supreme Court during an oral argument recently in U.S. Automatic Sprinkler Corporation versus Erie Insurance Exchange et al. We previously discussed the proceedings before the appellate court on episodes 84 and 88. 88 was the results, I think, of our prediction sure to go wrong. The court described the case thusly. Tenants of a commercial building and their insurers sued U.S. Automatic Sprinkler Corp. for damages caused by a broken sprinkler system. Automatic Sprinkler had a maintenance contract with one of the tenants, Sycamore Springs Surgical Center. Automatic Sprinkler moved for summary judgment against all the plaintiffs, which the Marion Superior Court denied. On interlocutory appeal, the Court of Appeals affirmed in part and reversed in part. U.S. Automatic Sprinkler Corp. versus Erie Insurance Exchange, 185 Northeast 3rd, 445. Indiana Courts of Appeals, 2022, vacated. The Indiana Supreme Court has granted transfer, so that's taken care of and assumed jurisdiction over this appeal. The reason who made the call might matter is, is that it might determine whether U.S. Automatic was working under their contract or not. The plaintiffs contended that the contract is not implicated because the landlord's agent called them about the leak, not the tenant who hired and contracted with them. Pat, tell us about oral argument. So thank you, Dan. And before we, before we get in, uh, get into it, I want to correct something I said in the yep. last segment. The re- we're still getting used to the redrawing of these districts. And I, I should have known, but Winnebago County now is in the fourth district. And so it would make sense that Justice Doherty 
um, who is from Winnebago County, would be in the fourth district. I'm not sure where Justice Zinoff is. My comment was more more geared towards where they were, where they were, and where they got, and how they got moved, and how far away it is from Springfield to illustrate how big the fourth district is. Because the fourth district runs now from the border with Wisconsin down well below Springfield. It runs the whole length of the western border of the Mississippi River down to the Metro East. Uh, whereas before, both the second and the third districts had parts of the counties that border the Mississippi River. So anyway, uh, this case is, as we said, a repeat flyer. I'll also say this is rocket docket. This case was decided at the appellate court in right. April. And we're having oral argument in the Supreme Court through a summer that one of their first arguments back in early October. Uh, that is remarkably fast uh, for Supreme Court briefing. Um, they they must have briefed out the petition for transfer. They granted it, which, as we've talked about before, leads to the vacature of the appellate court opinion. So the appellate court opinion is no longer good um, once the Supreme Court takes it over in Indiana. That's how the rules work there. And so now you have a, a so they've taken it, briefed it, and now they're arguing it. Given the number of parties, but any case in a Supreme Court, but not, but the number of parties in this case to get this done that fast is really kind of a, a remarkable. Uh, typically, you would you would leave a year for right. this to be done. For, so you would be expecting spring of next year. They're going to have this decided by uh, by Thanksgiving at this rate. So bully for them. Uh, that's 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 some justice. So. Um, this is a case, as we've talked about before, where you have a contract between the sprinkler, sprinkler company and, their, and one of the tenants. The sprinkler uh, system goes bad. It floods not only the tenant's unit, but other units as well. I think pipes freeze causes a big problem. Um, and the insurers of all the tenants and of the landowner all pay to fix this. It's obviously a covered loss. Uh you know, obviously physical damage. No, no, none of this BI stuff, none of this bodily injury or a, a business interruption stuff we've had with COVID. This is plainly covered. Um, it gets covered, and now the insurance companies get to fight. And as we've talked about before with waivers of subrogation, this is an object. The object is to try to get the construction done and, you know, shift the risk to the insurers. Insurers aren't very happy about it, uh, but everybody else is because they get their stuff fixed and they can move on with their lives. Um so the insurers are all fighting with each other over whether this is covered or not. Um, as we've talked about with other subrogation cases more recently, like the Shank, the Shanker case, insurance companies, they're going to fight in a particular case, but they're not going to fight for the global right. principle. Because at the end of the day, they all write this kind of insurance. It, you know, The vast majority write both property and liability insurance. They're going to be on one of the other sides of this thing. It, it, they just want to win this particular case. They're not... They're not looking for a global policy because they're going to find themselves in the very situation the other side is in right. soon enough if they aren't already. Uh, so <laughs> unless you've got a carrier that only writes property coverage or you have an insurer that only writes liability coverage, which there's very few, those, but if, you know, especially these big they're writing like this, it's not going to be something that happens very often. Uh, and certainly the big organizations that would file amicus briefs aren't going to show up in a case like this because they got parties on both sides. Doesn't make any sense. Um, so the the real ar the argument here, as we talked about, is this this Peter principle is that once the work is accepted 
under Indiana law, you can't bring an act and no one can bring an action. Questions, does that apply to not only bodily injury, which is what the Peters case says, but also to um, property damage, which uh, humanitarian concerns are the term that's used by the uh, Supreme Court when it said when it created this Peter principle, which dealt with a bodily injury claim and abolished this uh, acceptance rule that you once it was accepted by the by the party who contracted with the general contractor, it was done. Um, so we'll we'll see how uh, um, how this comes out, whether it they because they split the baby. Uh, the appellate court did. It said that the non contract the non contract claimants could recover, but the contract claimant yeah. could not. Um, so we'll we'll see how this turns out. Um, Dan, anything else to add on this case? No, like you said, though, I was very surprised by how fast this appeared on the docket. It's, uh, you know, the Illinois Supreme Court and Indiana Supreme Court typically are slower than this. Like you said, it typically would be a year, especially with a lot of parties involved and a lot of uh, a lot of issues to sort through. But yeah, I, I don't know why. I, I don't know why there was no reason necessarily for this to be an expedited situation. This is in a situation where someone's dying, witnesses are, you know, this kind of a thing. That's really not the situation here. It's a subrogation. It's insurance companies aren't right. going anywhere. The money's been paid. You know, everything's been fixed. It's a question of who has to pay and who's who's at fault. I mean, so it's not. I, I just they just this one just yeah. went fast, and maybe it's the exception that proves the rule, or maybe they're speeding up. I don't know. Um, not that they're especially slow. It's just these things take time. Right. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll talk about. Uh, Business interruption for COVID, which seems we just mentioned. Uh, um, Dan, uh, tell us about uh, tell us about our development. For sure, this. there was a Hawaii state court that uh, denied a motion to dismiss and let the uh, theater that was uh, had submitted a COVID uh, BI claim uh, to go forward against Allianz. And again, early stages. All that means was that an appellate court or a or a trial court? Uh, I believe it was a trial court. Um, but I have to. I would have to check on that. Okay. But I, I okay. think that's what what happened there. So not appealable, right? So yeah. So okay. yeah. Not much not going on. Not quite. And as we've said, you know, it's, it, there, there'll be some. Uh, we'll probably have a spate of cases again as as some uh, highest courts get these cases. But right now it's pretty quiet. And uh, so and all the all the m- most every circuit yep. has ruled on these things repeatedly. So there's not a lot going on at the the U.S. Uh, course of appeals. So that's that's what it'll be this week. Yeah, we're almost done with the federal yeah. activity. The federal activity is going to yeah. go away. It's going to be all it's going to be all in the state courts yep. now. Um, and it may come back to federal court if one of the if one of the state courts say actually there's right. coverage. Right. So <laughs> that could that could revive some of these cases, but we'll see. Which brings us to our prediction: sure to go wrong. We were o o and one this week. Um, that is, we uh, we had a punt. We punted Devane versus Archwood. Uh, Dan, why don't you tell us about uh, about this case where we wisely punted? Yeah, this is the arsenic case on the on the uh, wood uh, uh, deck, and the Devanes had appealed. They argued that their action is not one for product liability, uh, was not subject to the statute of repose because the Product Liability Act uh, governs only actions for physical harm. To a person or property other than the product itself, they were not claiming any existing or past physical harm, only the risk of future physical harm. Um, what the, the court decided 
and probably a good thing we punted was that they agree it's not a product liability action, so the product liability statute repose doesn't apply, but they still affirm the dismissal of the Devane's complaint because they failed to establish, as Pat, we talked about, that equitable remediation is a valid cause of action, really, rather than a simple type of remedy. And you talked about that, uh, and it's exactly as the court decided. It's not a, a separate court cause of action. Uh, it's it's a remedy, and so you can't you can't plead in any court that I'm aware of remedies as a cause of action because it's right. What's <laughs> what's the elements of the remedy? I mean, it's it's uh, so it, uh, uh, so so uh, probably a good thing we punted here because it's such a nuanced decision. We would have had to figure out the algorithm machine whether we got a half victory or. Uh, loss or whatever so <laughs> and we've done we that have. one before so so with that that brings us to our prediction should or go wrong for this week uh, McCabe versus CrossFit Dan uh, I think it gets affirmed I think it gets affirmed too yeah. Village of Orion versus Hardy this is reversed, reversed on about 75 right. different grounds right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a zillion reasons. To, this is, and, and I want to add on this case. I want to add on this. They're fighting over a city ordinance involving cats. So they've been to the appellate court twice. And this is not likely not the last we've heard of these people. Who is paying for this? And, and what's on the on the defense side? And who is playing for this in the village of Orion? And, and it seems there's a mootness element because the position was eliminated. So there's probably no person that could take on this many cats from the county again. So it's all, yeah, I'm not sure who's paying for it. I kept thinking that too. Yeah, where are the cats, where are the cats go? Or the cats have died right. by now. Or the cats have right. died by now. You can't, this, this violation was issued in 2014. Right. I mean, at least some of the cats are dead. Uh, probably a lot of them. I mean, that's Poor eight cats. years. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's a long time. The cats live for a long time, but. These were cats that were already strays and perhaps elderly and, and, and so forth. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, U.S. Automatic Sprinkler versus Erie. I don't know. I'm yeah, no, nah, that's a punt again. <laughs> I I'm mean, as, as we're talking about it again, I'm thinking I have no idea what in the hell is going to happen here. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think we can. Yeah. I have an inkling it's going to go better for U.S. Automatic Sprinkler in this case than it did in the appellate court. I think so. But I'm not so sure. Uh, so with that, Dan, um, brings us to the rule of the week. This is one uh, you found. Tell us about this. And please don't read No, I'm not going to read everything. So th th this one deals with the Supreme Court of the United States and, and the justices that are assigned to one or more of the 13 circuits. Uh, right now we have Roberts assigned to three, Alito's assigned to two, Kavanaugh's assigned to two, and all the other justices have one uh, circuit each. Uh, Thomas is... Thomas is the 11th Circuit uh, Justice that gets referred to. And what do they get referred to on? They get referred to on a lot of emergency motions or uh, petitions to, to get the cases escalated to the Supreme Court. Uh, in this case, uh, recently, last week, uh, the, the former President Donald J. Trump submitted an appeal to Justice Thomas of the Mar-a-Lago uh, Special Master and Discovery and, and the Raid on Mar-a-Lago, and Thomas had a choice in that case per the guide uh, that's given out uh, for how the Supreme Court acts. It says the circuit justice 
may act on an application alone or refer it to the full court for consideration. The fact that an application has been referred to the full court may not be known publicly until the court acts on the application. Um, the says that applications for stays in capital cases often not always refer to the full court. So what did Tom, Thomas do in the Mar-a-Lago case? He uh, presented, uh, the, the appeal was presented to Justice Thomas and by him he referred it to the court and the court uh, last week denied uh, the motion to get involved in that matter. But that's just how the, the Supreme Court works in terms of circuits. Uh, you know, back in the days uh, for many years uh, the justices rode circuit, which meant they were assigned and a large part of their uh, time was actually spent on the road, actually hearing cases uh, with district court or appellate court justices before there was really a course of appeal system. And so nowadays uh, the justices are assigned a circuit. They don't write it, but they're, that's how it works. And so just an interesting factoid of how the Supreme Court works. Uh, and, and this happens often. You may... So to add on to that, yeah, so to add on to that, um, make sure I get this right. Justice Alito sits, well, Justice Roberts, uh, he preside, he's the circuit justice for the, for the circuit he yep. sat on, the District of Columbia, yep. as well as a couple of yep. other circuits. Justice Alito sits on the third circuit. Yep. He sat on that court. Justice Kagan was not a circuit court justice before she was on the Supreme Court. Right. I got that right? Yep. She was... She was dean and solicitor yep. general. Okay, dean and solicitor general. Then she, okay, Justice Jackson. She sits over the first circuit, but she didn't sit on the no. first circuit. She sat on the yeah. DC yeah. circuit, right? Where, where did she sit? DC circuit. Uh, and then Justice yeah, Justice Sotomayor sits over the second circuit, where she sat as an appellate court justice, and where she sat as a yep. district court judge um, uh, before before that. And then Justice Kavanaugh. He can't sit on the on the DC circuit circuit because Justice Roberts has that, and that makes sense. The chief has the DC circuit and the federal circuit. Yep. That makes sense. Justice Barrett sits as the circuit justice for the seventh circuit where she sat. Justice Gorsuch sits for the tenth circuit where he sat. Justice Thomas also was not a circuit court justice judge. No, he was. He was. He, was, he, was, he sits over. The he was DC circuit, circuit, which is. Oh, he's on for the a DC year. Circuit. For a year. He was on yeah. the DC circuit yeah. again. Nope. Not available. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I yeah. Yes. And but he sits over the 11th Circuit, which includes Georgia, That's where he's it. from. So there's some rhyme to reason to this. Uh, the one the one that doesn't make any sense for where he has where he sits is Justice is Justice Kavanaugh, because uh, he has the the fifth circuit or he has the sixth circuit and he has the eighth circuit. And he's from neither of the states that he's from. He, he neither the court he sat on nor where he's from. But no one else is from those those circuits either. So he got the yeah, which is uh, <laughs> he got the uh, he got the Midwest, except for except for uh, the Seventh Circuit. <laughs> that's exactly you know. So it, it is interesting that there's yeah. This is not a coincidence that this is how yeah, no, that's works. how they do it, and um, they're familiar with the operations of the courts. Yeah, and when they used to ride circuits, they used to try to come and, up and with that as well. Thing, where, where you're from, right? And and when you come and and. You, Dan, you mentioned the recent Trump situation. Another example where this happened recently and got some play was the Yeshiva University yep. case, where uh, the application to stay the uh, was submitted to Justice Sotomayor, who granted the stay 
and then referred the matter to the court. And then the court um, denied the stay with a dissent from, I think, four of the justices. But she granted it in the meantime while they waited. Now, in Trump's case, he wasn't asking for a stay. He was asking for the court to take the case prior to judgment, which is an extraordinary action for them to take, basically skip over the appellate court process and uh, and take it over early, which they is very, very rare. They did it in the, uh, they did it in other Trump cases. I want to say they did it in the chamber, the, the, the Department of Commerce yeah. case involving Wilbur Ross. They, they did, did it in that case. Uh, but that's not a very frequent thing that they, no. that they do. Um, but it is, on, it is on the menu. It just doesn't happen very often. Um, so with that, Dan, anything nope. else to add? So we'll take our leave. We thank everybody for joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and Panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.